With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. The first time someone pays that you don't know, right? Like that's not your dad coming to your class. Like, are they going to have a good experience? Are people going to come and just be like, why did I pay for that? So I had like a little bit of like imposter syndrome and or I felt like so scared of like, am I selling them snake oil? This is Finding Founders, a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. I'm Samuel Donner. And today on the show, we talk to Shira Gorin, founder of Zygo. Zygo is the first underwater headset for streaming audio and live communication. I swam competitively for 15 years and always joked to my friends that swimming was the most boring sport imaginable. For hours on hours, all I did was swim back and forth on the same stretch of pool looking at the black line below. But Zygo is bringing a little more fun to a sport that is too often dismissed as a monotonous activity for the old and frail in Michael Phelps. But hey, if trendy soul cycling studios can make riding a bike that goes absolutely nowhere fun, why can't Zygo do that for swimming? While Shira's days are now spent smelling of chlorine with a constantly damp head of hair, she didn't start out in swimming. In fact, her early passion for sports can be traced back to the soccer field. I'm one of four I have an older brother, younger brother, younger sister. And because I had an older brother, just a lover of sports. Playing outside all the time, always wanting to do what he was doing, whether it was playing soccer or basketball. So absolutely grew up a tomboy. And soccer was my main sport, but most of my childhood memories are just playing outside, running around. When I really reflect on it, my confidence came from my ability to play sports. And because I was good at sports, that gave me more confidence. But socializing in the more traditional sense in terms of just being with like a group of girls or like attraction to the opposite sex or not. And I think that always kind of gave me anxiety. And so I think that's probably why I really dove headfirst into sports, just because like to me, that was like a safe space. At the beginning, it was just for fun and for sport. And then as it developed, it was like, oh, you can play this in high school. Oh, you can play this in college. And I think as a kid, when you're just trying to find somewhere that you fit in, it was a very easy area for me to feel confident in and kind of like an escape. Soccer guided Shira's life. It had a beginning, middle, and end, a set course. Her life was basically Mad Libs, most of it written out for her with a few small spaces to add some parameter individuality. She basked in the comfort of allowing the sport to take care of everything for her. Shira was passively floating through the linear structure that sports provided for her, 
But simultaneously, she had strong female role models that encouraged her to break the mold. I mean, my Nana I could talk about forever. She's literally my best friend. She's 97 and still just totally kicking and with it and the funniest person I know. She obviously grew up in a very different time, but was the first female in a lot of ways to lead a mission or the first female head of a committee. And I always admired her ability to like make a stance. She's probably had like the biggest impact on who I am and I definitely have a mouth on me and an opinion and I think in general like my personality the way that I saw the world and seeing you know my Nana like say things in public I think gave me the freedom to also express myself and have an opinion and be funny or be challenging just like she was. Having her Nana as a role model shored up her confidence in her own identity. As a young woman, many of her character traits were discouraged. She was sporty, sarcastic, driven. Shira's Nana was, and and still is after 97 years on this earth, all of those things. The spunk of her nonagenarian grandma and best friend brightened up Shira's teenage years. And it helped her transition into one of the most identity-rattling junctures in a person's life, college. I very quickly realized that soccer in college at that level was not for me, and it became a job more than a choice. You know, you like some of your team, but you're competing for spots to travel. You are waking up at 5 a.m. to go on a run. You have like even more hardcore fitness tests. And it turns out that sport, like it was humbling. Like I was good, but like there was a lot of girls that were just better or bigger or stronger than me. identity was wrapped in it and I had a tough time like separating myself from soccer and from sport and sophomore year I came back fitter stronger better than I was my freshman year and my coach didn't travel me and that weekend when everyone was away I just think I had a moment of like loneliness and really questioning like why am I doing this If it's causing me this much sadness, if it's causing me this much stress and I'm not going pro, like, am I doing it just because it's like what I know? And I was in a big school with so much social opportunity and felt like I had no one to call on or nothing to do and wasn't okay with that being my direction. Shira quit the thing that she loved most. Being a collegiate athlete took everything that she loved about sports and turned it on its head. Growing up, soccer was her social scene. In college, it deprived her of a social life. She must have been thinking, soccer was my thing. What's my thing now? Who are my friends? What's next? I think junior year started really thinking about 
what else I liked doing. And my grandfather, my dad, some of my uncles all went to law school and it was always in my head as something I might like doing on top of the fact that like, I guess when you're when you're argumentative as a kid, everyone's like, oh, you'd make a great lawyer as if like that's like what you what you do. I met a few females who were like high powered attorneys or they worked in house at studios and automatically felt like, I don't know what kind of lawyer I'd wanna be, but I liked the women that I was talking to. They were smart. I liked the way they thought. I liked the way they saw the world. And so I was like, I definitely think it's something that I would strongly consider. I think Shira saw teammates in all these accomplished female lawyers. And teammates were something that she had sorely missed. And so she pivoted towards law. So you eventually went to UCLA Law School. So what was that experience like? You know, I loved it. I always have loved food. You know, we all eat every day, but like thought it was just like a, you know, a side hobby or a passion and like going to restaurants. And when I was in law school, I realized there was a small niche of hospitality law. And once I realized, I was like, that'd be sweet if I could combine my like love of food with my education. And so a, a pretty prominent hospitality company called SBE, I ended up working there half of my second year through the summer and then all of my third year. And then after I took the bar, I worked there full time. That was like, I think one of the establishing moments of my life where like everyone was saying you have to go work at a law firm and I was like no that's what you guys did like I don't want to go to a law firm I definitely like everyone was going one way and I definitely went the other direction everyone was going one way and I definitely went the other direction we've arrived at a turning point before Shira was a follower swimming in her safe little crowd of minnows she had followed her teammates her older brother his friend in college her lawyer father and mother and she found comfort in linear progression. But now, she bucked her tradition of following. She started to gain independence by going off to college and strengthened her sense of self-confidence by cutting off soccer, which had become deadweight. While she loved law school and the people that she had been meeting, she refused to passively float downstream and follow the path prescribed to her peers. Shira was ready to fight the current. So was going in-house what you thought it would be? It was not everything I expected. At the end of the day, a contract is a contract. And to sit and redline contracts all day long, it's really boring. Lawyering is like comfortable, boring. You know, I can like stay in this one lane where like I can redline contracts and it's just words, but like, I, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Like I want to be on the business side. SBE is in a joint venture with Umami Burger. Umami, it's Japanese for savory or yummy, and it's generally accepted along with salty, sweet, sour, and bitter to be one of the basic flavors that can and actually be sent. And the GC head of business there was actually a close friend of mine and it was a much smaller team. And so I was also always poking him about what's going on there. Like, what are you guys working on? Like, what can I sit in on? And I always thought that it would be fun to work in a growing company that was a little bit more wild, wild west that I wasn't necessarily pigeonholed 
into like one vertical of just being a lawyer. And that's where eventually he, three years after working at SBE, he poached me to come work at Umami. This was Shira's put me in coach moment. She didn't like warming the bench or being tucked away on defense. Shira dug in her cleats and charged full tilt into the business side of things. The guy who poached me left the company a month after. So by de facto, I became general counsel at like 27 and was the only lawyer within the company. So it was definitely like a trial by fire. But yeah, it was much bigger shoes than I had been wearing before. I learned a lot about being able to ask questions and being okay asking questions. The key attribute in that sort of situation or as a founder, I think it's just being resourceful, right? It's like being smart enough to know what you don't know, which is for me was like a lot at that time. I had never opened an international franchise and then was tasked with opening our first one in Japan and like traveled to Japan a few times with our partner sourcing it and opening it. And like, I was in a position where I was making decisions that then had a direct impact on the direction that the company was going, where that was like a small taste of just being in a high level position and liking that pressure of big stakes. The training wheels came off. Shira was making decisions that had global impact, but she was completely inexperienced. She learned quickly. Shira had sought mentorship her whole life implementing the advice from mentors directly into her process. This consistent learning developed a growth mindset. She could basically be told to do anything, and she might not have to do it initially, but she would be able to figure it out. Shira had always been good at doing what others told her to do, but now it was time to get good at what nobody told her to do. Lawyering was like paying the bills, but I've always wanted mostly from my grandparents and my Nana to like give back to the community and do something that's bigger than myself. And I was going to charity events or other sort of like sponsored programming. And it just wasn't what I wanted. And I was literally on a run. I was thinking about what I like doing. And I was like, I love dining. I want to donate. And I was like, oh, dinating. Then I could create this, you know, dinner series where you could come, you could have amazing food at restaurants that you've been wanting to go to, and then you also help feed a family full of four for a day. So it's like an eat one, feed one model. Social media and like asking for more donations and building the brand and being creative was like 0% of my skill set. And I think because of that, it was just me, but I wasn't really able to grow it in the way that I wanted to. And it started to feel like it was a chore because I was like an event planner, like doing, you know, six dinners a month. It was like, how do I scale this? This isn't really going to scale into the dination that I envision. Being so excited about something and then having to put it on the back burner like i feel like that's kind of tough right this is like your first entrepreneurial endeavor what were the mix of emotions surrounding that experience i really thought to myself if i ever start a business again i'm not going to do it alone i want to i want a co-founder with me because it's so lonely and because 
that same balance of like, you're not going to be good at some things and having someone else there who is good at it or can pick you up or can look at things differently. Shira learned a lot in this business venture. And one of her key takeaways was that she couldn't do it alone. She didn't know where the road was leading, but she knew that she needed someone else along for the journey. Someone to traverse the emotional ups and downs of entrepreneurial life. These lessons would soon prove invaluable as her supposedly stable day job hit rocky grounds. So when I first got into SBE, we had like this amazing CEO. I saw it as an opportunity to learn from him. And then uh, he left before his contract was up. And so that was my first like red flag of like, hmm, there's probably things I don't know that this that's happening behind the scenes. And then started looking at like a lot of the stores, like comp sales weren't doing well. Some of them were trying to close. So you were trying to keep this facade of this company growing. But like, if you looked under the hood, like the engine was not big enough for the car. That's when I knew and I had a decision of either riding it out or quitting on my own terms. So I consciously decided to, to write it out um, so that then I could kind of have some time to think about what my next move was. And I was kind of in this role that I was like, I'm never going to be in this kind of position again. Like, let me learn as much as I can for as long as I can. And then when I have to find something else, like, I'll find something else. So you felt like pretty well positioned to jumpstart your next venture. I did until I was forced to then think about what I was, what I could do and realized I was a total generalist with zero level of applicable skills to anything else. Shira wasn't sure what her next move would be, but she knew that the best place to think about it was far, far away from her home. She remembered her experience with dining and the thrill of working for herself. With an uncertain future, Shira set off for Thailand to discover her purpose. I remember I was in the Himalayas in India and one of the, per the people that worked there walked by me one day and was like, oh, someone left this book here. You might find it interesting. And like, he knew nothing about me, but it was basically about a lawyer who got so stressed out that he became a monk in the Himalayas. And it was like all about this like lawyer who like then found himself and like into this much more peaceful life. The monk who sold his Ferrari a spiritual fable about fulfilling your dreams and reaching your destiny. The wake-up call. He collapsed right in the middle of a packed courtroom. He was one of this country's most distinguished trial lawyers. He was also a man well-known for the $3,000 Italian suits which... And then well I had a moment. I was flying from Thailand into Laos. And you had to fill out one of those customs paperwork. And one of the questions was occupation. And I was like, I don't want to write lawyer. Like, I just don't, I don't want to write that. I want to write something that like inspires me or like, I love being outside. Like it was like a memorable moment of really questioning, like maybe like, I'm not just going to be a traditional lawyer, like at all. 
We'll be right back after this break. I've been itching to travel, but there are two things getting in my way. Traveling is expensive, and we are in the middle of the largest pandemic the world has ever seen. But that didn't stop me from living out our travel fantasy and trying to save some money in that fantasy by calling Amtrak and saying, can I share a seat with my friend? Hello, thank you for calling Amtrak. This is Ronnie. I can help you. Hello. I was wondering if there are seats that could be shared. Seats that could be shared? Yeah, like, could I share a seat with a, a friend? I'm trying to understand. You, you, want to, you want two people to sit in one seat? There's no such thing as seat sharing. Right, so like, like my friend couldn't sit on top of me or anything like that during the ride. Uh, unfortunately, no. Your friend could not sit on top of you during the ride. No. Uh, man, I, I wish sharing a seat was as easy as sharing a podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, you can share a podcast really easily. You could share uh, Finding Founders by screenshotting it or putting on Facebook, Snapchat, or Instagram story. Gotcha. But I mean, they will let you sit next to each other. You know, I, I feel like I... It's just I, not the same. Yeah, it's not the same. Gotcha. Like, I like, mean, you guys can get pretty close to each other, you know, lean on each other, lay on each other, or stuff like that, but... But you know what's never an issue? Sharing this podcast. Take a screenshot of this episode, tag at Finding Founders Podcast, and post to the social media of your choice. Don't forget to subscribe and rate five stars. Now, back to the podcast. Shira couldn't fathom being a traditional lawyer any longer. It was also uninspiring. The label of lawyer was a constant reminder that she was just another small fish in a large pond. Growing up, she had always been a bit of an outsider, and the insecurity birthed from this feeling had ultimately driven her to settle for the traditional. This story has been told thousands of times with the same ending, and she was tired of it. Luckily, fate had other ideas for her. In the most unexpected place, she would rekindle an old friendship. friend's wedding and reconnected with my now co-founder, Charlie. This girl that we went to high school with as well, her name's Shelby, she was like, sure, you and Charlie need to talk about fitness because both of you guys like love fitness. And so she like put us together. For the rest of the night, we talked about first like what we've been up to for the past 10 years because we literally hadn't really spoken for 10 years <laughs> since high school. But then also about boutique fitness, like with SoulCycle, Barry's Bootcamp, Yoga, Pilates. He had preliminarily started thinking about the swimming category. And for me, it was like the one sport not in my repertoire. And so we spent, we spent that night talking about like the initial thoughts of swim team. And then the next day we drove from Palm Springs to our high school, Harvard Westlake, to do like our first pool workout together to see like what it was all about. You hadn't seen this person in 10 years and then it's just like, like instant click. Like, why do you think you guys click so well? I'll speak for myself, but I think I speak for him too. We both had a mutual level of respect for each other. I mean, I would imagine it's like somewhat like meeting your significant other. Like, it's just, we had this like connection. And we were both in this like interesting position where like he had transitioned out of his last job and I was in this space where like, you know, I didn't want to go back to being a lawyer. So for me, like this dream might come true. 
And while the lawyer gig wasn't too shabby as far as backup plans go, she knew that this business was her ticket out of the mundane. And she wasn't going to take that lightly. She wanted to do something crazy, something that differentiated her. But Shira wasn't a swim coach. She wasn't really even an entrepreneur yet. But she was convinced that she was going to create the soul cycle of swimming. So we wanted to create a 45-minute boutique fitness swim class that was fun and energetic and had charismatic instruction and an upbeat playlist and something we didn't see on the market at all. Like ClassPass had no swim category. We created that category and we both were like, swimming is is an amazing workout, but there's nothing that makes it fun. You have aqua aerobics that like my Nana would do and you have really intimidating lap swimming that a master's organization would do. That's like an hour and a half swim from like five to 6.30 in the morning. But like those aren't your class passers. Those aren't your people who love boutique fitness and just want to like have fun doing it. Because we were in LA, we found actors that had a swim background. So they were good looking and they had these fun personalities. And they also knew something about swimming and then had this like structured 45 minute class that started out with a warm up, and then you would have like a small technique set. And then the bulk of it was uh, circuit type training where you would do like, instead of like a tap it back and soul cycle, you would lap it back. You do deck ups off the side of the wall or you would like tread water and then you would lap it back to the other side. And then you had a sprint set. So you would get your heart rate up. And then we ended with what we call the swim asana, which was like a shavasana. So like a mindful moment where you would have your legs up on the side and you'd lay back and like you would leave feeling cleansed. Shira wanted to bring fun into swimming, something that she definitely achieved with her combination of swimathanas and lapbacks. Being a founder of the Soul Cycle of Swim was definitely a far cry from the desk-bound lawyer she thought would inevitably be in her future. Internally, Shira had always harbored an affinity for the unconventional, but years of pencil skirts and blouses had smothered her uniqueness. No longer. She had found a career path that didn't force her to fit a mold or shape her into something that she wasn't. Her classes were a reflection of herself. They were quirky, fun, and energetic. Seeing these parts of her identity resurface made her realize that she had been living a sham. She had been going through the motions, suppressing her own unhappiness, but now her passion had returned. And with a rejuvenated sense of self, she was going to tackle the next challenge to elevate these classes. That challenge was creating underwater headphones. So as we were beta testing and thinking about the class, um, the, the biggest hypothesis was that we needed to recreate the studio environment underwater. How do you do that? We tried above water speakers. We tried below water speakers. We tried anything that existed in the water world for audio and realized there was nothing that really existed for just being able to stream audio. Like we stream audio all day long and you can't in the water. And so Charlie, one of his many valuable assets is uh, a self-proclaimed huge China nerd and, and lived in China and speaks fluent Mandarin. 
and ended up finding and sourcing this bone conduction headset from a small factory in China that we hacked with a splitter. It was like a splitter with two microphones, one going to what we call the phony pack for the speaker of the phone and one going to the coach's mouth. And the customer could put the bone conduction headset on and then hear the music and the coach as they swam. For the consumer, they could hear and it was great. But like, if you lifted the hood, there was like wires going everywhere. It was like so janky. And like for us, I was so embarrassed by it thinking like our first customer is, there's no way they're gonna put this on. They're gonna think this is like, they want their money back. And we're like really self-conscious about what we were putting on the market. And then realized that like all of that was like invisible to them. Like they didn't even see what was going on behind the scenes at all. And I think, Charlie and I are both not swimmers, like, but I think that is our secret sauce. The fact that we attack swimming with like a perspective of this is intimidating and really boring. How do we make it fun? And just like a place that you want to come work out at. And because we were hyper consumers of boutique fitness, you know, we noticed from SoulCycle, like what do they have in their bathrooms? Like what do they provide that like enhance the experience? So like. We had towels and we had lotion because like after you swim, your skin gets dry. So like we could give them like little lotions and then we bought like a bunch of small bags so that they could put their wet bathing suits into the bags after. Like swimming is no longer a chore. You show up with just your bathing suit and we have everything else covered for you. So you don't have to think about it. And it becomes this like, it's just like less intimidating in a way that we found all those other boutique fitness options. And I think that's what was like really successful about it. Could swimming be as easy as bring your swimsuit to the pool? Shira certainly thought so. If she could make swimming fun for a novice, then she could capture the boutique fitness market. Now, she had to test whether people would actually show up to her workouts. Because we weren't building our own pools, the initial cost to entry was pretty low. Like we spent some money on, you know, some of the towels and some of the coaches, but we were just hustling for pool time. And the first pool that we could get was Venice High School at 8 p.m. on a Wednesday. And I was like, mother I don't want to work out at 8 p.m. on a Wednesday. I'm like, how are we going to sell this as like the best time to work out? So we showed up, we bought battery candles to like put around the pool to try and like make it like sexy and fun because it smelled like chlorine and it was a gym. My mom like laminated signs that pointed in the right direction for like where to enter the pool because it looked like a warehouse. Well like run around town, grassroots marketing, like I was pinning like little, um, flyers on like the, the boards at like, you know, any place I could, I could find. From there, like that class sold out and then we were able to sign up Santa Monica Swim Center and we got like a 7 a.m. class on a Tuesday and Thursday. When people showed up to that first event, like what did what did it feel like for you? Sure. So I had like a little bit of like imposter syndrome and or I felt like so scared of like, am I selling them snake oil? Are people going to come and just be like, why did I pay for that? The first time someone pays that you don't know, right? Like that's not your dad coming to your class. Like, are they going to have a good experience? And so 
I thought that would be a gating issue. I thought people would like not know how to put it on or not have a good experience because it was so janky and it wasn't our product. And so we would show them how to put it on and then tell them like how it works even better underwater and then encourage people to get in the pool. And our coaches then took over. But I was like a nervous wreck because I wanted our coaches to like make sure the customers had a good experience, but it was also their first time really like coaching these people. And then, you know, you take a step back and you're like, people are swimming, they're gonna get a good workout. They're not gonna notice if like the song skips, like you notice it, but like every small detail to us was like the biggest deal, like a deal breaker. But like the first class like went pretty well. People liked the workout. I would say about 70% of the people in our first class came back for another class, which for us, like that return rate was like everything. Shiro was emotionally exhausted after her first class. The first class was a success, but would she have to put an exorbitant amount of time and energy for every class? She wasn't sure. But what she did pursue were the small victories. She had proven to herself that this was worth pursuing. People would show up and keep showing up. Shira had gone into this project harboring insecurity that she didn't want to admit. She had imposter syndrome and didn't feel like she was actually providing value. Once again, she was stuck in a cycle of doubt. She was afraid of failure. So she downplayed the risk she was actually taking in pursuing her fitness business. She reverted back to her mentality of comfort, convincing herself that she was satisfied with going back to being a lawyer if her jaunt with fitness failed. But she wasn't. The high of her small success was enough to convince her heart that this was her calling. She was finally seeing the light. Seeing her clan grow was confirmation that her business was thriving. But it turned out it wasn't just swim classes her customers were after. They wanted her headphones as well. Simultaneously, two things were happening. One, coaches were coming up to us asking if they could use it because they could talk directly to their athletes. We had never thought about doing our own hardware, but when everyone was asking us about it, we started thinking more heavily on like the Peloton type model where you have like hardware and beyond. That's when we decided to form our second company and focus on the hardware side of things. Was it hard to let go of the swim team idea? What was it like leaving that behind? It was really hard because again, like someone like me who like likes structure and then like I got good at something and I was like, what do you mean hardware? Like, I don't know anything about hardware. And so I was like, I kind of like being in this like comfort zone of like now I'm good at just like running these classes. Making that decision was, it was tough, but we also thought that there was an op- like a much bigger opportunity to have a bigger impact in the swim world. Shira saw an opportunity to broaden her company's reach and she took it. Although it was difficult to stray from her comfort zone, it was a risk she was willing to take. By now, she was accustomed to the discomfort. She had confidence that this free fall into the unknown would eventually lead her to solid ground. And so that new company was Zygo, yeah? Yes. Tell me about what it was like getting that off the ground. I basically went back to square one of knowing nothing. 
starting the company was totally different than anything I'd ever done because it was my first taste of like, oh, I need to fundraise. Taking something from scratch and building a hardware product was so expensive and so much more expensive than I ever thought. But it was like starting to talk to people who had had some experience in product, really tasking Charlie and I with coming up with a business plan that we could take to our family and friends to start fundraising. That was probably the hardest part. You're asking people for money, but really you're asking and giving them the opportunity to be a part of your company. When someone else puts their money into your company, that made it even more real, right? Like that was like, oh, okay, this, this like cannot fail because it's not just about me anymore. And it's not just like my funds. Like I have people who now believe in me and believe in what we're doing in a way that like, I, I can't not succeed. Like that's just not an option anymore. And that made it more real and more serious than anything that I'd, I'd ever done. With like this magnified seriousness, how did that fundraising process finish up and how did you go through it? In our pre-seed, it was a lot of like hand to mouth. Like we were hustling and have this like Excel spreadsheet of like people we reached out to, what their response was, like when to follow up with them. But for two and a half years, it really felt like we were hustling to sell our vision. And, you know, as we got further along within the product, like, you know, at first it was just a 3D design and it was conceptual. And then we started to have like working product and we filed the patent. Now we have a patent and all these things along the way gave us more and more confidence. There was no plan B for her to fall back on. No lawyer job waiting for her. It was make or break. So she pushed forward. We did a pre-sales campaign about a year ago and we sold our first thousand units. And that was just starting to test the market of like what the appetite is for it. And it was like an overwhelming response within, within 30 days. And it was really good insight into the type of customers that we have. And it started that dialogue and just realized like our audience is so broad. And today we have three patents. Due to the current climate, probably shipping our first units in June. And we are raising our seed round right now. Up until this point, it's just been Charlie and I. And so the next step for the company would be to actually have our first hires bring some of the work in-house and really deploy a proper marketing budget. Like we haven't really spent anything on marketing and the Olympics that were this year, but now next year, swimming has its 15 minutes of fame. And so I think that's a major opportunity for us to get swimming on the map. And we also have an app of workout content, especially within this, you know, this Corona economy right now with at-home fitness. There's so many players and land fitness is so saturated and similar to what we were able to do with swim team, like no one's touching water, but it's not because swimming isn't an amazing exercise. It's not because people don't want to, it's because they don't have the hardware to be able to stream the audio. We have guided workouts on our app that basically make swimming fun. And it's anything from a 30 minute 
hit interval training to like a learn how to breaststroke to like a dry hair do care. Like if you don't wanna get your hair wet, then it's like all breaststroke and like doing exercises that like keep your hair dry. And so thinking about all the customers that have been excluded from swimming and making it fun on a digital platform, um, that's what gets us really excited. What advice would you give a young entrepreneur? Just to start, just to like do something and talk to people about it. I think we're a little too precious with our ideas. And I gotta be honest, like no one's gonna take your idea because it's really freaking hard to start a company. Like it's not like someone overnight can just make it successful. And you learn a lot by talking to people about it. But I think just getting started is like the biggest piece of building a business. Sports meant the world to Shira. Soccer was her rock, her identity, but she gave it up, losing herself in the process. She lost direction, drifting, settling. Although on the outside, she seemed to have the perfect life, on the inside, she was in complete turmoil. As a lawyer, she had a steady income, but she felt she had no opportunity to grow. She wasn't passionate about law. She was passionate about fitness. Her identity has always been rooted in sports, and she knew she could not suppress her passion any longer. She took a leap of faith, leaving her stable life behind to pursue a whim, and it paid off. In making swimming fun for her customers, she brought new life to her own boring one. But it wasn't smooth sailing for Shira. She doubted herself. She wasn't a technical genius. She wasn't a programming whiz, but she was a people whiz. Sometimes creators are not the best operators, but that isn't what matters most. Shira wasn't the ramen-eating garage tinkerer, but there's no denying that she is an entrepreneur. In sports and entrepreneurship alike, you have to find your passion. You have to understand your skill set and be able to apply that skill set effectively. Pair that with a bit of hard work and you're on the road to success. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Adrian Tapia leads the editing team with Matt Fernandez, Sophia Donner, and Dharma Shaw. Phoebe Sajor leads the design team with Annie Liu, James Barton, Charlotte Isidore, Rachel Dang, and Maddie Bozen. Sahej Sandhu leads the outreach team with Jessica Lin, Sasha Ivanova, and Roma Bedeker. Sophie Davies leads the writing team with Joyce Mock, Dan O'Nissen, and Elizabeth Bowen. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.